Okay, welcome everyone uh, to the first episode of the Natural Philosopher Show, uh, where I talk to some of the leading natural philosophers of the day about some fascinating topic that they've been working on. I'm uh, Dr. Siddharth Muthukrishnan. My guest today is uh, Professor David Wallace. David is the Mellon Professor in the Departments of Philosophy and History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Pittsburgh. Uh, in my view, David is one of the leading philosophers of physics of the day. He also happens to be my academic mentor, so it's a real pleasure to have David as my guest. So welcome, David. And today we're going to talk about your work on black holes. Okay. Uh, before we begin on talking about black holes, the first question I wanted to ask you was about the phrase natural philosophy. So when Isaac Newton wrote his magnum opus, the Principia Mathematica, he uh, called it the mathematical principles of natural philosophy. Now that phrase has gone out of fashion in the past century, but I think of you as a natural philosopher. So do you think of yourself in that way? And do you think you can identify natural philosophy in today's intellectual landscape? Up to a point, although I hadn't thought about it that way, the way I think about the way Newton was using the term philosophy and the way we use it now was that philosophy as a discipline, although it often gets accused of not making progress, really makes progress by spawning off other disciplines. So prior to the 17th century, you couldn't distinguish uh, philosophy from physics. Um, you know, there, was a, there, was, there was a sub chunk of philosophy where the questions they asked were questions about the nature of matter and motion and mechanical principles. Um, and so much progress was made in that region of philosophy in the 17th century that we stopped calling it philosophy. It took a couple of hundred years for that fully to bed down, but it really became a, a discipline with its own internal cohesion. Uh, the philosopher Daniel Dennett had this lovely quote that philosophy is what we do when we don't know what the questions are. Mm -hmm. And by the same token, when we make so much progress that we really clarify what the questions are and can really start focusing on what the answers might be, that's often when, when, philosophy, when a chunk of philosophy uh, starts calling itself another discipline. But there's always a kind of blurry boundary that's left behind in that process. Um, physics didn't stop generating conceptual problems that were as much about the methods of philosophy as about the more calculational methods of, of physics, just because of those steps of, process, of progress. And so if you look at the state of um, philosophy of science, philosophy of physics now in the 21st century, of course, part of what that discipline is concerned in is looking at physics from afar, thinking about the methods of science and the like. But part of it is continuous with the more conceptual ends of, um, of, of what physics itself is engaged with. So I think, about, I mean, I normally describe my work as interdisciplinary, somewhere mm. between philosophy and physics in a way that where it becomes as much a matter of the sociology of the field where it's classified. That's possibly as good a place as any to put natural philosophy in the 21st century. Thanks, that makes sense. So we could talk a lot about this, of course, but I think uh, I'd like to move on to our primary topic for today, which is black holes. So tell us what are black holes and uh, tell us these terms that people often use when they talk about black holes, which are horizons and singularities. How do you think about these uh, ideas? Sure. I mean, the first thing I should say there, and this is a typical philosopher's piece of pedantry, is that black hole is a term that's used 
in various different bits of the physics community in slightly different ways. And while it's clear that they're all talking about essentially the same thing, that doesn't mean there's a complete sharp definition that everyone agrees about. But roughly speaking, a black hole is what you get when the escape velocity for a region of space gets so hard that so high that light can't get out of it. Mm-hmm. So if you imagine um, you know, on, on the surface of the Earth, if you throw something up into the sky, then if, if, if me or you or any human throws it up, then in due course it comes back down again. But there is a speed at which it could be thrown such that it would just keep going forever. And there's a, a boundary between the speeds that keep going forever and the speeds that come back down again, and that's the escape velocity. If you made the Earth denser and denser, then the escape velocity would get higher and higher. If you kept the density of the Earth just the same but made the Earth bigger and bigger, likewise the escape velocity would get higher and higher. Long before we even had the theory of relativity, people realised that there'd come a point at which um, the escape velocity would reach the speed of light, in which case you couldn't see anything coming from an object um, that heavy or or, or that dense because um, the, the very rays of light that would tell us about it wouldn't be able to get off the surface. In the theory of relativity, um, we've learned that the speed of light is an absolute speed limit. It's not just the speed at which light goes, it's the speed above which nothing can go. So if something is, uh, has so much mass or so much concentrated mass that its escape velocity becomes that of light, then nothing can get out at all. So that relativity perspective shifts your concept of a black hole into a region of space with what you might call a one-way door around it. Things, well, things can get into the black hole, but at least at first sight, and this is a lot of the subtlety of the, of the modern subject, things can't get back out again, because to get back out again, they have to move faster than light, and nothing can do that. So it's not obvious immediately that light itself should be affected by gravity, right? And I think this was one of the big insights of the theory of relativity is that in a way that escape velocity applies to light itself because ordinarily people might think that if I shine a flashlight up there's nothing pulling the light back down. Exactly. There's nothing in Newton's theory of gravity that tells you that gravity applies to light. I mean I mean equally there's nothing in Newton's theory of gravity that tells you it doesn't. Newton's theory of gravity is silent on light. And the, the speculation that gravity would apply to light was certainly uh, you know, what led to those pre-relativity ideas of black holes I was talking about, but it, they were only speculations. And the speed of light is so ridiculously higher than the actual escape velocity from any chunk of matter we can get at in the solar system that uh, you know, until 100 years ago, they had to be speculation. Uh, but our picture of light was transformed by electromagnetism in the late 19th century and by the special theory of relativity in the early 20th century. And when Einstein tried to take those advances and make them consistent with using the picture of gravity, uh, the way of making them consistent more or less forced the result that light had to be affected by gravity. Uh, and a rough way of seeing why that is, is that uh, in the, the, the insight Einstein had about Newton's theory of gravity was that gravity is not so much a force, it's a changing of the local structure of space and time and light moves through space-time. So if, if, if gravity is actually changing the shape, the shape of space-time, then gravity had better apply to light as well. And one of the, and the, the prediction that light would be affected by gravity was tested um, very soon after Einstein's theory was developed. It was one of the sort of great post-First World War scientific sensations. 
but no, you're, I mean, you're absolutely right. The, um, there's nothing, uh, nothing purely in the logic of the matters that require it to be effective. But by this stage, the experimental evidence or the observational evidence, I should say, that light's affected by gravity is pretty overwhelming. So this region from which nothing can escape, that's what we call an event horizon. But it's sort of curious fact about black holes that you always also have, at least mathematically, something called a singularity that accompanies these horizons um, in black holes. And you can never, there's even a theorem, I think, which says that you can't have a singularity without a horizon, though you can have horizons without singularities. Um, so what are singularities? How should we think about them? So, so just, to, just to start with this notion of the event horizon, I mean, the event horizon, if you like, is the, uh, is the bar on that one-way door I was discussing. Um, out, the event horizon is the, is the surface such as if you go closer to the middle of the black holes region than the event horizon, things can't get off it. Um, the, the, the issue of singularities is, is subtler because by definition, you can't, um, we, we can't have seen these things. They're a theoretical prediction. Um, it was, it was noticed uh, relatively early in the, in the development of the, theory of, of the general theory of relativity that the solutions to those equations that seem to describe black holes broke in the center of the black hole. So when I say broke, I mean that the equations broke down, they stopped working. That's what uh, physicists mean by singularity. They mean a place where the equations predict something infinite or something nonsensical or something. Um, it singularities normally tell you that at that point your theory's gone wrong and, the, and a new theory needs to step in and replace it. Um, and the fact that these singularities turned up in these solutions was originally thought to be a sort of pathology, something funny about the solutions. And the solutions were unrealistic. They, they assumed space was exactly symmetric in certain ways, um, whereas realistically there's always going to be some little variation. And the, I think the kind of consensus among physicists up to about the late 50s maybe was that... Um, uh, the singularities would go away in, in realistic general models. Uh, it was uh, a, a bunch of people, but most, most famously and most importantly, Roger Penrose and, and the young Stephen Hawking, who demonstrated that wasn't actually true, that it was a very general property of black holes that um, even if horizon formed, then a singularity would form later. So that, the, that meant that the breakdown of, in, in the physics way of putting it, the breakdown of general relativity was predicted by the um, formation of these black holes. And, and the weird thing about that is that while uh, the singularity is a point where the physics is being super stressed, whether you can approach the singularity claims being made about regimes of physics that are way out of reach of anything we've ever got at observationally, that's not true for the formation of the black hole itself. I mean, concentrating matter enough to make a black hole is ridiculously difficult if the matter is something like you or me or even the Earth. But when you start getting a few solar masses, it's not so hard. So black holes seem to be astrophysical objects. They seem to form in relatively, relatively ordinary processes, certainly not processes that challenge gravity. So, so, so this is the rather surprising prediction that um, nonetheless, these relatively ordinary phenomena presage a failure of the physics in the center. As for whether the singularity has to have an event horizon, that's a vexed question. Um, there's something called the um, cosmic censorship hypothesis. Um, which basically says that that will always be true. And the reason it was proposed was really that it's kind of embarrassing if our laws of physics break down. And if they do, you know, break down the laws of physics is kind of like nudity. If it happens, it should be <laughs> usefully screened away from passers-by to protect their innocence. <laughs> so um, uh, the, the, the thought was that the, um, 
provided singularities only occur within event horizons, um, then that breakdown of physics can't get out to infect the wider universe. And there's a bunch of evidence that the, that the conjecture is correct, but I, to the best of my knowledge, to this day, there's no general proof. And indeed, you can, you can start arguing whether looking for general proof is quite a coherent thing to do in view of the fact that general relativity is almost certainly not the last word in gravity. Right. So this comes down to the fact that a singularity is something that tends to happen on scales that we think that general relativity will break down. That's right. Um, I, I mean, more, more or less what we mean by a singularity doesn't literally require that, but in a kind of loose way, it basically requires that. Because um, if you sort of, if there was a singularity, but all the physics was perfectly innocuous up to the, right up to the singularity, normally speaking, there are counterexamples, but normally speaking, you just take the singularity away and extend the physics normally across it. The reason things are going singular there is because the physics is getting worse and worse as you get close to it. I, I mean, let me give you a sort of innocuous analogy of that. Um, the, if you take the field, the electric field of a point charge, so electricity here is an analogue to gravity, but it's a simpler theory. Um, electric fields obey the inverse square law, so the strength of the field uh, gets, um, gets smaller with the square of the distance um, to the charged particle. So as you get closer, the field gets higher and higher and higher and higher and higher. And at the middle of the description, if the particle was literally a point, the field would have to be infinity. That's a singularity. And you can't remove it because as close, if, 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 you, if you look at what the field strength is ridiculously close to, the, um, to that central point, it's ridiculously high. And if you get even closer, it gets even higher. And it goes on without limit. So there's no value you can plug in for the field in the middle of the charge that will make the, um, the overall field behave itself. And something similar is going on in the singularities inside black holes. As you approach the quote singularity, the singularity isn't literally a point in the space-time, it's a breakdown of the space-time, but in slightly loose terms, as you approach the singularity, the gravitate, again in loose terms, the gravitational field gets stronger and stronger and stronger without limit, um, and eventually uh, it'll reach a point where, however, however reliable you thought your theory was, if you thought there was some level at which it broke down, you reach that point. Thanks. So earlier you brought up this idea that black holes are astrophysical objects that they form from stellar collapse. And these days, there has been a lot of confirmation that there are actually black holes, something that was disputed uh, even a few decades ago, especially after the recent direct photograph of a black hole that was published and also the uh, gravitational wave observatories, LIGO and uh, Virgo. So, so this sort of naturally brings us to the next topic, the topic that you've worked on, which is the question of black hole thermodynamics. And so we'll start with one of your uh, papers, the case for black hole thermodynamics. Mm. Um, and the question, you can think about this in a couple of ways and you can tell me whether these are good ways of thinking about them. So if black holes are formed from the collapse of stars, then we know from a lot of evidence that stars are thermodynamic systems because they're just really hot gases. Um, yeah. And so it's been very successful applying the principles of thermodynamics to, uh, to stars. Uh, so on this way, it seems like, well, of course, black holes will also be thermodynamic because they're formed from the collapse of stars. Uh, but on the other hand, you can think that since there's this horizon which prevents anything from coming out of 
the black hole, whatever the thermodynamical processes are going on inside, they're kind of uh, closed off to us in a way that we don't really care about because they won't interact with any other systems. And there's yet another third way of thinking about these, about this, which is that one of the ways you can think about black holes is that they're just sort of solutions to the Einstein's field equations that are purely geometrical. So there are these three different ways of thinking about, so sorry, just to complete that last point, because they're geometrical, you might think that thermodynamics does not apply to them because what on earth are you? You don't talk about the thermodynamics of triangles, so why should you talk about the thermodynamics of uh, black holes? So there, are, there seems to be some confusion here. So what do you think is right or wrong about these ways of thinking about this? Sure, well, I mean, let me, let me answer a little indirectly. So in terms of why you might ever think a black hole was a thermodynamic system, I mean, I mean to, to be clear, a thermodynamic system means something like, something that has reached equilibrium according to the principles of thermodynamics, has settled down to a, a steady state where we can characterize it in terms of very simple parameters, like how much energy does it have? What's the pressure of the box in which it's kept? Um, how many particles are in it? If you, if you take a box of gas, then uh, in, you know, in principle, you need a gazillion numbers to describe the full gas. But actually, in, re in reality, if you leave the gas to settle down a little while, if you know how big the box is and how many particles there are in the box and what the temperature of the box is, you've said everything interesting about the box. So that's the sense in which, um, that's the minimal sense of thermodynamics. But, the, the, but then thermodynamics has these very general principles um, governing it. Um, and most famously, the principles that uh, energy is conserved in interactions between um, thermodynamic systems, but something else, entropy, isn't conserved. It only ever um, it only ever goes up. Entropy is sort of roughly speaking um, a measure or an inverse measure of how much useful energy you can get out of the system. So when we say entropy can only ever go up, what we mean is you, is you can the amount of useful work you can get out of the system only ever goes down. Um, if I uh, you know, if I take a hot object and a cold object, I can do useful things with the temperature difference between them. If I put them together and let them equilibrate, reach the same you know, average temperature between them, then uh, there's no longer any useful work I can get out of them. The entropy has gone up. So people noticed in the early 70s that there were really surprising analogues between um, the formal properties of thermodynamic entropy and, the, um, uh, and some of the rules of how black holes behaved. So, for instance, you can you can specify a black hole once it's settled down and it's sort of the sort of initial turbulence of its formation has died away, which happens pretty quickly. Then you can really classify a black hole only in terms of like how heavy is it, how rapidly is it spinning, what's the size of its electric charge. I mean, the, the the last is almost always zero for astrophysical cases, but in principle, it's there. Um, and furthermore, you can write down equations for how. Um, for what kind of useful work you can get out of a black hole by, for instance, dropping little bits of matter into it or cruising really close to it or bouncing waves off it. And those equations tend to have exactly the same formal structure as the equations of thermodynamics, with the interesting detail that the area of the black hole was the quantity that corresponded to entropy. So that was one line that made people think, well, maybe black holes are, are thermodynamic objects, or, or at least they're formally like thermodynamic objects. And another line that made them think that was that from the level of microscopic physics, entropy seems to have something to do with, with disorder, with the number of possible ways, um, the microscopic ways something could be re rearranged um, in order to produce the same macroscopic result. And because nothing can get through an event horizon, 
then if I take a bunch of particles of a certain collective mass and a certain collective spin and a certain collective charge, and I let them form a black hole, that's all I need to know. They can be arranged any way you like and it will form the same black hole. And so it looked as if the black hole ought to have this sim singularly stupendous entropy. And there were kind of rough and ready reasons to think that numerically the value of that entropy ought to have ought to be the surface area of that black hole. Um, but there were, so that was, those are lovely formal analogues, but um, now to some extent we come to your, your geometric point. Um, uh, are they any more than formal results? Um, and I think the fact that, it, that black holes are geometry is itself not a reason to think that they couldn't be. Um, the, uh, um, yeah, the, there's, there's no problem with the idea that, that we might have a theory that describes phenomena at some higher level um, that nonetheless has a lower level description in terms of many microscopic goings on, and so has thermodynamics applicable to it. But black holes in particular didn't seem to be the kind of system to which that did seem applicable. And in particular, there was one apparently completely killing floor with the idea that black holes could be thermodynamic systems. And that was the fact that if I take, if I take an ordinary thermodynamic system, let's say I take a, a, a sphere of, of, of iron and I heat it up, it will radiate. If I put it in a box full of radiation, it will absorb that radiation, sure, but it'll also emit radiation. If the radiation in the box is hotter than it is, it'll absorb stuff till it warms up and get and equilibrates. If it's colder, it'll net emit radiation till it cools down and equilibrates. Um, and if it's in a box of radiation at the same temperature as it, it'll just stay there. Well, a black hole isn't like that. The event horizon is a one-way barrier. Um, and so uh, you'd expect that if you put a black hole in radiation of any temperature at all, it would just eat it. And so the only, temperature you can consistently assign to the black hole be zero. Uh, and it was the discovery by Hawking and the confirmation of that by various other people in the 70s that made people um, that made people rethink that because Hawking surprised everyone, including himself, I think, by discovering that the effects of quantum mechanics close to the event horizon of the black hole means that black holes actually do, at least according to the laws of general relativity and quantum mechanics, uh, emit radiation and they emit radiation at just the temperature, the exact temperature they ought to have if they were um, thermodynamic systems with the surface area behaving like an entropy. So that's the kind of, that's, that's the sort of case for thinking of as a, as, as a, at least before you start getting into physics that goes beyond um, things we have strong control over. The case for thinking it ought to be um, a thermodynamic system is all of these ways in which it behaves just like a thermodynamic system and crucially including the fact that it radiates just like thermodynamic systems do. Um, and just to sort of in reverse order to go with your last comment about continuity of thermodynamic systems, of course, but before something like Hawking radiation, I think people would have thought, um, well, there isn't really any continuity at all. The, um, the star that collapses into a black hole used to be a thermodynamic system. Indeed, that star still is a thermodynamic system, but the event horizon now means we know nothing about it. So its thermodynamics are not our problem anymore. Um, the, in, in, the, in the modern picture, that isn't gonna be quite right. Um, we are, because we do wanna think of a black hole as thermodynamic in an ordinary sense, then there does need to be a sort of continuity between the thermodynamics of the star and the thermodynamics of the black hole that's formed from the star. But it, <clears throat> We shouldn't infer from that any idea that there's some simple relation between those, like that the entropy of a black hole that forms from a higher entropy chunk of matter will be higher than that that forms of a lower entropy chunk of matter. So here's an analogy. I mean, let's suppose I take, um, I'll take a box of gas and half of the gas is, um, is hydrogen and half of the gas is oxygen. And I'll take another copy of that box. So those two boxes are identical, they've got the same entropy. 
in one of the boxes, I remove the partition. I allow the hydrogen and oxygen to intermingle. In the other, I leave it in place. Uh, now one of them has a higher energy than the other. Now I take both boxes and I put them into the middle of a supernova. So at this point, it doesn't matter anymore that one of them had a higher entropy than the other one did. The, um, uh, the process of the supernova um, so dramatically allows both systems to explore a ridiculously wider range of possible states um, that the fact that one of them started off with a head start just isn't relevant anymore. So you, do you think it would be fair to say that when a black hole forms via stellar collapse, and you pointed out that the, the black hole can be described using very few properties, namely the mass, the charge, and the angular momentum. Um, now, of course, the mass, the charge, and the angular momentum would be conserved in this process of yeah. stellar collapse. And these parameters are sufficient to describe the thermodynamics of the resultant black hole. Uh, but the black hole has forgotten about many of the other thermodynamic parameters that the star used to have, such as its pressure, its volume, its entropy, and these other thermodynamic quantities are now forgotten in a way by the black hole. Do you think that's fair? Yes, it's fair, but it's subtle. So um, here's, here's the crucial question, and this, this is a real divide in the, in, in the literature and a real frontier of sort of contemporary conceptual issues in physics. Um, is it forgotten in the sense that it's been completely annihilated? Or is it forgotten in the sense that the microphysical properties of, of, of those two boxes were forgotten when I put them in the supernova? Um, in, in, in the latter case, in principle, someone who observed the supernova with ridiculous care could work out which box I put in. Um, because the microscopic physics of the supernova, um, loosely speaking, is one to one. Every, every input is mapped to unique output and vice versa. So knowing the output uniquely reconstructs the input, you get a different, at the microscopic level, you get a very slightly different supernova if you put in one box and put the other box in. But in all, for all practical purposes, the information has been forgotten. Um, it's critically important to these debates, whether in the black hole case, um, the information has been forgotten for all practical purposes, or whether it's really been annihilated. Right. Yeah, I think I think it's worth maybe pausing on how counterintuitive the formation of a black hole horizon is in a way. Yeah. Uh, and I like to think about it in this way is that you can have a collapsing shell of matter. So you have like the collapse of a supernova that's going to go form a black hole. And, you know, you, you could be on the surface of the supernova and the matter would be collapsing and you're at some point you will cross the horizon and you would become part of the black hole, but you would have no idea that you, that, that has happened in a way that you have crossed this pivotal moment in your life that you can't go back outside this space, but locally around you, everything is going to behave just as it ordinarily behaved. That's exactly right. The, the formal definition of the event horizon is you can never escape and never is a long time. And that means in effect that the, in principle at least, facts about the arbitrarily far future um, and, and therefore because things move about the arbitrarily distant present are relevant to whether there's an event horizon in the here and now. It's, the, it's, it's possible an event horizon is passing through Pittsburgh as we speak. Um, I mean, kind of unlikely, but possible. Um, uh, and we wouldn't, we wouldn't see it. I mean, what's slightly confusing is that the, 
the actual contingent processes of black hole formation that the universe gives us are staggeringly violent. Um, but that's, that's a contingent matter. That's just the processes the universe, in fact, seems to want to use to make black holes. You're, you're dead right that there's nothing inherent about the nature of forming black holes that requires it. Yeah, so there's, it's very unlikely that there, someone could invent a spacesuit powerful enough that I could actually stand on the surface of a collapsing supernova and survive the process, but uh, yeah. Um, thanks, yeah, so I think we got, uh, we got started talking about Hawking radiation, yeah. and uh, you pointed out that Hawking's calculations really solidified the case for black hole thermodynamics. Uh, can you very quickly describe what Hawking's argument is? So a version of this argument that's quite popular is that there are vacuum fluctuations that are, happen near the horizon of a black hole and there are particles that are created and one particle falls into the black hole and one particle escapes the black mm -hmm. hole and the thing that escapes is what we call black hole uh, radiation or Hawking radiation. Do you think that's a good picture? Uh, or are there better pictures? How should we think about this? It's it's not a terrible picture, and you can you can make sense of it. Um, it's not super helpful as a way of thinking about it. I think if you're trying to do uh, anything particularly sophisticated with it, it's it's telling that while that's almost always the description of Hawking radiation you find in popular accounts, it's very rarely something you see referenced or discussed in um, uh, in the actual physics literature. I mean, you know, so you, you can finesse things so to make it right. Um, here's a slightly different way of thinking about it that's, you know, if you like, the next step along the, the process of, 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 um, uh, of diminishing heuristics. Um, quantum mechanics has this ubiquitous feature called entanglement. Um, you know, as a PhD in, computer, in, in quantum computation, you understand better than I do, but um, as a general gloss, um, uh, Roughly speaking, entanglement is a property where I have two quantum systems and there are facts about the joint system that don't reduce to facts about either system separately. Um, and uh, if you take um, if, 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 you, if you take two systems, they can include complete, they can be completely disentangled, or they can be very strongly entangled, or anything in between. And again, speaking a bit loosely, an interesting property of large-ish systems with many degrees of freedom is that if I take two of them and I entangle them as much as I can possibly manage consistent with the total amount of energy they've both got then each system in isolation looks thermal looks like a hot system they're not jointly hot um, but they but if you looked at each one in isolation they'd be hot now a really surprising interesting feature about space is that according to our quantum field theories our best theories about matter on very small scales space itself is entangled or that's better the the quantum fields that live in space are entangled on really short scales. So the space of my, around my left hand space around my right hand, technically there's a little bit of entanglement between them, but not so that you notice. Um, you need to look at really, really short length scales to see the entanglement, but it's there. So this now, is the fields that live on empty space. So what space looks, the space that looks empty to us has these fields. That's that right. That's crucially, that's a crucial point. Even when the, um, uh, even when the, um, there are no particles there, there's still the field, um, and the field can still be entangled. And, 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 that, and that situation where, where the field is there, even though there are no particles, is what we call vacuum fluctuations. You know? and, and that's what leads to these somewhat heuristic pictures of virtual particles popping into existence and into non-existence. Um, so if you imagine 
So if I drew a line through space and I somehow obliterated everything on the left-hand side of the line, then the quantum field just on the right-hand side of the line would look thermal because I've got rid of all of the other stuff. And so I'd just be left with this, um, this maximally entangled thing where I've thrown away the other thing that's entangled with. And so if I, if I did that, if I sort of obliterated space to the left, um, then the boundary of my, when I obliterated it would look hot. Um, and the black hole event horizon does something kind of similar. So if you imagine two bits of space, or your field states, if you like, of two bits of space, just to the left and just, well, just to the inside, just to the outside of the horizon. So now if you're sitting outside the horizon, I mean, heaven help you, but if you're sitting outside the horizon holding onto a string or something, um, then nothing inside the horizon can have any effect on what you observe. And so as far as you're concerned, it might as well have been destroyed. Uh, and so as far as you're concerned, those bits of field just on the outside edge of the horizon look hot. And that's Hawking radiation. Um, and given what I was saying, that you can kind of heuristically think about the entangled quantum vacuum as this sea of virtual particles, you can now start seeing your way to how that connects to the virtual particles being made real um, heuristic that you see in the popular accounts. So the argument itself, once, when, once we have it on the tables, seems quite simple, right? It seems quite elegant and not very complicated. And the surprising thing, as you pointed out about this argument, is that if one calculates the temperature of these radiations, or if we calculate the temperature of a body that would be supplying this radiation, then that matches the temperature of the black hole that we calculated using the formal analogy with thermodynamics, correct? Yeah, I mean, with, with two subtleties. Um, what, one of the subtleties is that there's actually a... I lost this a little in the earlier account. There was like a constant of proportionality that wasn't given us given to us in those earlier arguments. I said that they demonstrate that the entropy equals the black hole area, but it's actually the black hole entropy equals equals the area times a fiddle factor. Um, and the fiddle factor you have to get out of Hawking's calculation. You can't work out in advance of it. The the other the other sort of more conceptually interesting difference is you it's the right temperature as measured by somebody quite a long way from the black hole. If you're that poor guy I was thinking about is hanging on the string really close to the event horizon, the radiation will seem super hot to you. It's only as you go further from the hole that the gravitational field of the black hole kind of slows down literally, but redshifts, de-energizes the, the light as it, as the radiation as it pulls away and cools it down until it reaches the, the correct temperature. Yes, this is the idea that, so if I have, if I shoot a flashlight, uh, pointing upwards, then as the light beam travels upwards, the wavelength of the light actually becomes longer and longer, and therefore it becomes cooler in the sense that it carries less energy per photon. Exactly. If I, if I throw a rock up in the air, it loses energy, and because it loses energy, it slows down. If I fire, if, if I, if I fire a flashlight up in the air, the photons of light made up, they can't slow down because they move at the speed of light and that's fixed but that doesn't stop them losing energy and what that means for light is it becomes lower frequency blue light goes to red light goes to infrared light goes to microwaves goes to radio waves i mean not not if you shine a light up from the surface of the earth it's not heavy enough but if you shine it up from a really heavy object like a black hole or a neutron star sure yeah so we know from this calculation now that we can really 
think of black holes as thermodynamic objects because the problem that you raised earlier that we'd have to only assign a temperature of zero to a black hole because it just absorbs everything and doesn't put anything back out. Uh, that problem is now solved because it turns out that the black hole really is putting something out. But someone might be confused by this because in the beginning we said that black holes have horizons and nothing can escape from black holes. So there seems to be some kind of contradiction here because on the one hand, we are saying that things are coming out of the black hole. On the other hand, we're saying that nothing can come out of the black hole. So how do we resolve this tension? Sure. Well, there's a shallow part of that and a deep part of that. Um, the shallow part is that the, the Hawking radiation isn't literally getting out of the black hole. It started outside the black hole to begin with. Um, it's these, it, 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 it's, it's, this, it's this effect of the event horizon successively shearing off these entangled states in the quantum field. And the ones that are outside the event horizon, but only just outside the event horizon, they are allowed to escape. They get ridiculously redshifted as they go away, but they're not prevented from getting out entirely. So that's the, that's the kind of shallow answer to the issue. Um, uh, the, and, and then in, in turn, because they're going away, the mass of the black hole is going down. But in general relativity, you don't want to think about mass as just a, a count of the number of little bits that make it up. Mass is a kind of global property of the gravitational field of the system, and there's no real contradiction in that changing, even if nothing crosses the horizon. But the place where it gets subtler and more contested is um, whether we can get, um, whether, whether when the black hole has eventually finished evaporating through Hawking radiation, we can get out the stuff that went in in the first place. And that's, that's, that, that, that's not directly predicted just by Hawking's calculation. That's something you have to answer, argue for independently. Yeah, so let's uh, discuss black hole evaporation. So this idea is that in a way, even though this radiation, as you point out, is coming from outside or just outside the black hole, it's yeah. still turning out to be the case that the black hole is becoming smaller. It's losing mass. Now, you pointed out that we shouldn't think of black hole mass as the sum of little bits that make it up. It's this, uh, so just crudely, it's the idea that in order to calculate the mass of a body, you go really far away and then you figure out what kind of gravitational forces it providing at that distance and then you sort of back out okay so there must be a mass of such and such quantity over there and that's that's that mass is definitely being reduced as black holes evaporate but someone might be confused about well all the stuff that went in none of that stuff has come out yet so all the little bits of matter that you know, before the horizon formed, we were happy to sum up and say that this was the mass of that body. None of those bits of matter came back out. So how can the mass reduce and the black hole get smaller, even if nothing comes up? Okay, so it depends what level you want to answer that question. Um, so Hawking's original calculation, let's just bear in mind that the, the, the physics situation we've got here, we're, we're interested in quantum mechanics and general relativity together. We're interested in doing quantum mechanics in a situation where gravity and the curvature of space and time are important. And a complete consistent theory of how to do that for any energy scales you like is elusive. We've been looking for a theory of that kind for nearly the whole lifespan of quantum mechanics and um, the search goes on. Um, 
but we understand or we think we understand various kind of approximate ways to get at little bits of that description. Um, so one way we can do that is we can say, well, theoretically, we can have quantum fields on space-time and then space-time should act back on the quantum fields and the quantum fields should act on space-time. But let's just do one of those and not the other. So we could say, let's just leave the space-time fixed. And we'll just take, just, just say, by fiat, this is a black hole space-time, that's all you need to know, don't ask any questions. And then do quantum field theory on that background. And that was what Hawking was doing. Um, that lets you predict that the, um, the radiation is emitted. That, that in itself doesn't give you the prediction that the energy of a black hole should go down because we just put, we just held the black hole fixed by fiat. I mean, just as the, the same kind of methods in areas of physics we understand better would lead you to predict that, you know, lets you, let you calculate the radiation from moving charges that way. And again, if you just treat the moving charges as background facts, then they can carry on emitting radiation all day and night without the charges slowing down because we didn't, we didn't include in the calculations anything about how the moving charges reacted back to, the, um, to what the field was doing. So similarly, to actually get out the fact that the black hole is getting smaller, we need to put back in some idea about how the space-time is reacting to the, <clears throat> to the field. And, and we have a bunch of partial ways of understanding that, and none of them are perfect, there's room to worry about all of them, but they all point in the same direction, which is that the black hole mass should go down um, for in exactly the same way as um, um, as, as you as you sort of naively predict, and the, the way those models work, they're, they're, what, they're, they're what get called semi-classical models, which is to say, we still suppose there's a unique space-time, um, and the fields are on that space-time, but we allow the way the space-time evolves to depend on what the fields are doing. Um, now, according to that, to, to either that original background description of what's going on or this semi-classical description of what's going on, the answer to what happens to the original matter is the same. It falls into the singularity and ceases to exist. Um, so uh, the, um, as soon as things cross the event horizon, they have the singularity in the future. Uh, as measured by their clocks, they hit the singularity in a fairly short length of time. Uh, they can make it slightly longer. Well, they can't for their own sake, they can't make it longer at all. They can make it slightly longer from the point of view of others falling in by accelerating as fast as they can back to the outside, but they, they can't correct the initial mistake. Um, and so eventually they hit the singularity and they cease to exist. So <clears throat> with the big caveat that even talking about what's happening inside the black hole as if it was unequivocal from the point of view of somebody outside the black hole, which, it, which isn't because of the way relativity mixes up time and space and let, gives us a lot of room to move in here. On that basis, in these semi-classical descriptions, the matter that falls in is just annihilated and lost. It disappears into the singularity. Um, and the, the mass it used to have comes back out as radiation, um, but nothing else. And then I suppose so does the charge and the spin, but nothing else does. Now it's worth saying that's what the semi-classical description hat says. Um, the vast majority of physicists think the semi-classical description gets that wrong, but that's what it says. Yeah, this is very interesting. And I think this is sort of the point at which philosophy of physics is, or philosophy of science is helpful because it tells us that we have these different models of the world that seem to not quite fit together in the right sort of way because we might have some judgments um, about how physics works pre-theoretically or from our Newtonian or just even purely general relativistic idea that, okay, so there's this mass that's coming together and 
um, it's that mass that's sort of being the source for uh, the gravitational field outside the black hole. And But on the other hand, when you actually look at the details, it turns out that this picture isn't quite right. There are these uh, subtleties in the sense that it falls into the singularity, but nevertheless, there's this space-time that's left over that looks from afar as there's a massive body there. Um, I, I'm not quite sure what my question here is, but I, I guess I'm just trying to point out that it's helpful to know from both the history and philosophy of science that science has always had this character of working with incomplete, somewhat inconsistent pictures of the world. And that, that that's okay. It's a kind of, I, I feel like philosophy offers a kind of therapy here. It's like, it's, it's, we can, these are the productive places to in, investigate, but we can still work with these inc inconsistencies. Yeah. Well, I think, I mean, one of the reasons this is interesting to philosopher is that um, it's a place of contest of conceptual disagreement within physics. So I've, I've, I've I, I mentioned in the beginning that, you know, it seems as if things shouldn't get out of black holes at first sight. I just mentioned that, um, the bulk of physicists think that the semi-classical description I've just given is wrong. Um, not everyone does. Um, so roughly speaking, physicists who uh, um, do high energy physics, um, whose training is in sort of particle physics and quantum field theory, and latterly in, in areas like string theory, uh, have become increasingly convinced that um, really the information about that stuff that fell into the black hole isn't lost in singularity forever it does actually come out very subtly encoded in that Hawking radiation um, whereas another branch of, um, of physics um, with what it, for what for what little it's worth right a you know, somewhat smaller group of people but um, people who again have to have their own good reasons um, believes the singularity story is correct that information doesn't come out that there's genuinely information lost forever not just lost for all practical purposes when the black hole forms. Um, and one of the things I think in principle philosophers can do uh, is help us um, work out what are the what are the forms of the argument going on here? What are the premises, tacit and explicit, that are leading people to these different results? I think it's the kind of thing that's continuous with what physicists are doing. I don't think one has to be professionally trained in philosophy to be doing that work necessarily. And I think um, just being thoughtful within physics lets you do it as well. But it, it's a place where the skill set and to some extent the freedom to ask these questions is, is, um, becomes helpful. But what, I mean, one of the interesting areas about this particular topic is why I got involved is most of the physics community, sorry, most of the philosophy community sides with the, um, the dissidents in physics. Um, the bulk of people in philosophy have written on black hole evaporation think that this is right and information must be lost that the arguments for that information gets out are under motivated over speculative leading people to increasingly implausible speculations when they should just accept the mundane fact of information being lost um i don't think that's right i'm uh, i'm in the minority in philosophy and the majority of physics um and um a lot of what i was interested in was really trying to get a deeper understanding of just what it was that was leading this part of the physics community to be so confident and have a critical assessment of those arguments and yeah, the, the, the critical assessment ended up being quite uncritical in the sense in that I became, became increasingly convinced the arguments were exceptionally strong. <coughs> yeah, so you've introduced this word information which um, we haven't really talked about but 
and maybe I can ask you to just tell me what information is, but perhaps a more helpful way of approaching it is to sort of go back to this connection with thermodynamics because someone who's not versed in this area would be a little bit confused about what information has anything to do with thermodynamics or gravity, right? So typically people think about information as having to do with communication, computers and things like that, at least the word information. Um, and so, yeah, so maybe let's sort of back up a bit and uh, talk about the connection between thermodynamics and statistical mechanics. And I think that'll like provide a natural bridge to the notion of information and it sort of forms the basis of your second paper in a series of papers which you published in 2018, which is the case for black hole uh, statistical mechanics. Um, so we know from history that one of the big discoveries of the 19th century and the early 20th century was that thermodynamic systems, systems that obey the laws of thermodynamics like conservation of energy and the fact that uh, isolated systems never reduce their entropy. These, these facts can be explained very elegantly by positing that these systems are constituted by uh, a collection of very large numbers of particles behaving in unimaginably complex ways, but nevertheless leading to fairly stable regularities at a certain level of description. So, so we should, at least that suggests that maybe black holes also have their thermodynamic behavior underwritten by that kind of uh, story. So tell us what the best evidence for why that is and why people might even begin to think that maybe that's false. Okay, so yeah, the, um, you're absolutely right, of course, that um, it, for, for mundane thermodynamic systems, um, which means systems ranging from your the transistors in your cell phone to the sun uh, to the you know the heart of a fusion reaction water in, in your in your eyes whatever we have a pretty good unified understanding of how thermodynamics comes about from a kind of statistical averaging over the microscopic constituents of um, uh, of those systems there's a huge amount actually that's conceptually uh, contested about how that works and um, another of the things I've done a lot of research on is, think, is thinking about those controversies but that will be a whole other story. At the end of the day we have a reasonably good idea in physics at least calculationally how to get from this microscopic story to the macroscopic thermodynamic story and most particularly we have a, a formula for what the entropy of a system at equilibrium is which is roughly speaking um, it's given by just counting how many microscopic states are compatible with the macroscopic state um, of the system we've got. And a way of seeing why that's a good measure is it gives you a kind of microphysical understanding of why it is that entropy can't ever be made to go down. Because if I start the system in one macro, macroscopic state and I, and I somehow change it into being in a different macroscopic state, um, then... <clears throat> Because, like I was saying earlier, uh, microscopic physics is one-to-one. -one. For each output, there's exactly one input. Then I need at least as many possible ways the second, the second macroscopic um, situation could come about as ways the first one could come about, so that every possible microscopic state compatible with the first configuration has somewhere to go in the second configuration. So that means that the number of states must be bigger in the second configuration, which means the entry must go up. 
there's more to the story than that, but that's a way of seeing how it how we have a connection between, I mean, ironically, between the very reversible nature of how dynamics works at the micro level and this irreversible way it can work at the macro level. Um, so when we see black holes that are for all the world like thermodynamic systems, it's naturally super tempting to ask, well, shouldn't there be a statistical mechanics of black holes that underpins um, that thermodynamic description? Isn't it kind of miraculous otherwise that they alone in the universe um, are thermodynamic without this underlying story? And more particularly, given that the entropy of a black hole is up to a fiddle factor, its surface area, uh, it's awfully tempting to speculate that um, there should be a number of microscopic ways a black hole could be proportional to its surface area, or a number of microscopic bits of a black hole, if you like, proportional to its surface area, um, to explain that formula. <clears throat> so that's a super tempting speculation. Um, one of the things I was doing in that paper, which is largely a kind of um, assessment and somewhat pedagogical presentation of things known by others in certain bits of the community, is show how much further we've gone from that speculation towards actual evidence. Evidence needs to be in quotes here, or um, none of this stuff is directly empirically tested, and there's not much prospect of doing so anytime soon, but evidence in the sense that theories we think we understand quite well, let us calculate these numbers and the answers come out right. Yeah, so maybe let's very quickly digress a bit and just talk about why it's so hard to do any of these tests experimentally. I mean, so for people who may not be aware, so first of all, we don't know how to go anywhere near a black hole um, because black holes tend to be, at least in our current astrophysical environment, they're quite far away from us. But that alone might not be convincing because we have all kinds of very good evidence about things very, very far away from us about uh, all the stars and many galaxies and their fairly detailed uh, behavior. So, so just very quickly, for people who might not know about it, why is it so difficult to sort of test anything about Hawking radiation and things like that? So the, um, uh, the bigger the black hole is, the colder it is. Um, that's kind of counterintuitive, but um, one way to see it is that the, the, um, the wavelength of the photons that come off the black hole are about as wide as the black hole itself is. So the bigger the black hole is, the longer the wavelength, and in in your theory of waves, then the longer the wavelength, the lower the energy. Um, but in any case, the, <clears throat> the temperature of a, of a black hole that's formed through astrophysical processes, so a black hole that weighs at least three times or more the mass of the sun, is super cold. Um, from memory, kind of of the order of one ten thousandth of a Kelvin above absolute zero. Now, it's really hard to see radiation like that. Um, the black holes we can see astrophysically are quite violent places. Um, the reason we can see them astrophysically tends to be because stuff is falling into them. The stuff that's falling into them is typically being heated up to billions of degrees. Um, and that, so that's ridiculously enough to swamp that radiation. Even if it wasn't, um, space is suffused with the microwave background radiation, which is basically leftover radiation from the Big Bang that's been cooling down over, the, over, over billions of years. But even after billions of years, it's not nearly as cold as the black hole radiation. So even astrophysical black holes, even if you ignore all the astrophysical violence that tends to go on around, around the ones we know about, um, those black holes are absorbing radiation from the microwave background radiation at a vastly higher rate than they're emitting radiation 
um, due to Hawking radiation. So <coughs> even if you even if you had a probe in orbit around a cold black hole, I think it would be an exceptionally demanding um, observational task to uh, detect the that radiation. Since actually with thousands of light years from near this black hole, it's just impossible. Right. Now people have sometimes hoped that um, maybe in the very early universe, which was an extremely violent place, um, much smaller black holes might have formed, um, things called primordial black holes. They could still have been around. Um, if they were around and they were small enough, you can imagine one of them emitting radiation strong enough that we could detect it. Um, many people had hoped that that would be true. Um, uh, I think Stephen Hawking particularly hoped it would be true because he clearly would have got the Nobel Prize in that situation. Um, it might still be true, but if it's true, then those events are unfortunately rare enough that they're not really showing up either. <clears throat> so never say never, but at the moment, it looks like the formation mechanisms for black holes in our universe are only giving us black holes that are way too cold to see. Yeah, it's interesting. There's some speculation that the, the proposed planet X or planet 10 or the, the planet that might be in our orbit in the outer solar system, which we have some evidence for from the structure of orbits of the planet, uh, and, but we haven't seen it directly using optical searches. There's some speculation that that might be a primordial black hole and uh, people are excited that if it is a primordial black hole, then it's plausible that we might be able to send up a probe to it and do measurements. So that would be really cool if that works out. It would be wonderful, but my, my kind of concern is that would be really cool if it works out is one of the major motivating arguments, factors behind those arguments. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so let's get back to the theoretical argument. So, so this black hole radiation, this Hawking radiation is extremely difficult to measure in any sort of empirical test in any sort of uh, foreseeable future. But nevertheless, we physicists uh, have fairly high confidence that, you know, that it exists, but moreover that the thermodynamic systems, the black holes, black hole thermodynamics are statistical mechanical system. So what is the nature of this evidence and and as sort of more philosophically, is it really evidence or in a way that philosophers think about it? Okay, well let's do that in two steps. So the, we have we have very strong arguments that um, if something like what I was earlier calling semi-classical gravity is an adequate description of what's going on in, uh, in physics, um, below energy scales where we kind of lose all grip of what's happening. Um, and more generally, if something you might call low energy quantum general relativity is accurate in that regime, um, then we're pretty confident, and one of the things I was arguing in the paper is we should be pretty confident that that, that, that theory predicts Hawking radiation and indeed predicts the black holes as statistical. And so, you know, insofar as we think those theories are right, then we should think that Hawking radiation exists, that the black holes are statistical. Um, you, can do, you can do those calculations in lots of different ways, making lots of different kind of assumptions, and they all point in the same direction. They all get the same set of results. Um, you can also do those calculations in some regimes using um, arguably our best candidate so far for a full quantum theory of gravity, which is string theory. Um, and in uh, in that regime, again, you get the calculations right, and you get them right very accurately. Um, 
physicists, um, and again, this could be a whole other tool, physicists in the last 20 years have become very convinced, um, or large, large chunk physicists have become very convinced that quantum theories of gravity have a different way of being described that basically is kind of like putting them in a big box and then doing physics on the outside of the box. This is a thing called the ADS-CFT duality. Um, and that, if that duality is correct, then again, it very strongly supports the claim that black holes as statistical mechanical that Hawking radiation exists, that all the story fits together. Um, so, as I say, if you buy all of those, or, or you know, any of those theoretical starting points, you're led to the same place. Should you buy them, and this is the philosopher's point, well, it kind of depends what question you have in mind is, um, should you bet your life on it? No, absolutely not. Um, should you fund research on this relative to other things you might fund research on? Well, it's a reasonable concern to say this is speculative. Um, uh, this is, um, uh, you know, um, this is not going to be testable anytime soon. But this is true for lots of things in these frameworks, and the issues like that are going to turn off against this has applications of usefulness in these ways. This is um, uh, this is cheap. This is ways in which we discover things. Um, but in any case, those kind of questions, either shall I bet my life on it or shall the research council support it, are mostly not the questions that professional philosophers spend their time working on. Mostly a philosopher of physics like me is interested in engaging with physics uh, with, as a philosopher, partly to contribute to the development of physics itself. From that point of view, um, where we are in quantum gravity is what um, philosophers have called the context of discovery, not the situation of ultimately testing the theory, but the situation of trying to develop the theory. And so then the question is something like, are things like semi-classical gravity um, the best starting point for doing work of this kind? And then I think the arguments extremely strongly are. Um, uh, the, our low, our low the thing I was calling low energy quantum general relativity makes lots and it has lots and lots of sub-regimes that are testable. Um, it makes predictions about how gravity should work in the solar system, which confirmed it makes predictions about how um, gravity and quantum mechanics should play together in neutron stars that are confirmed. It makes predictions about aspects of cosmology that are concerned that are confirmed. There's room to squibble about exactly how um, how tight those confirmations are, and there are certainly aspects of the theory that are not very confirmed. Um, but nonetheless, the theory is a pretty conservative extension of our um, of our starting point. Um, uh, gives a kind of unifying tissue that captures lots of smaller regimes where quantum mechanics and gravity play together. Um, it, that's not to say that some alternative research program that denied these assumptions and that was getting somewhere and being useful should thereby be, be closed down. It's the more minimal claim that deciding to take this as a starting assumption and see where you can get is reasonable. Um, and I think a related question you can ask is, do we have good reason to think that there is a consistent quantum theory of gravity that has this theory as a low energy limiter? And I think there again, the evidence, and by its nature, this is mathematical evidence, that this is pretty good. It doesn't follow from that, that this theory of gravity is the correct quantum theory of gravity. Um, but right at the moment, we have no quantum theory of gravity. Uh, sometimes people worry about the problem here being under determination that the evidence doesn't tell us which of our various theories are correct. Well, we have no theories, so um, we don't need the evidence to tell us which one's correct at the moment. The challenge at the moment is to, cut, is to find any consistent way to fully make sense of the quantum gravitational regime. Um, these are clues towards such a way. Yeah, so that's very interesting. So 
So just to sort of be clear, so uh, we started out trying to understand how it could be that these uh, black holes thermodynamical behavior is underwritten by statistical mechanical behavior. And um, you've pointed out and that there are these different lines of evidence from different theoretical starting points that all point to the same conclusion that indeed these thermodynamical systems are statistical mechanical. Now, these different theoretical approaches might disagree somewhat about what the nature of the micro microphysical constituents driving this thermodynamical behavior is. Yeah. And, uh, and in that sense, there are sort of different theories or perhaps some of them are just silent. So you mentioned semi-classical gravity and in that- yeah, semi-classical gravity is silent about it. Well, it, it constrains what it would have to look like, but it doesn't actually give an answer. It's, yeah. So that's kind of uh, interesting is that you could have evidence for something being statistical mechanical, even if you don't really know what the nature of the underlying constituents is. But on the other hand, um, I guess that's not that uncommon in physics, right? I mean, in the sense that when Einstein analyzed Brownian motion, he didn't really have a very good understanding of the microscopic constituents of water, but he still was able to say that they were little point-like particles wiggling around. That's right. I, I mean, physics, um... <sighs> Very often in physics, we're in a situation of having a theory that works at low energies or large scales that we understand pretty well and feel fairly confident about. Um, and lacking a theory at short distances, high energy scales, um, uh, either because we haven't got it at all or because we can't test it. Um, and we're often trying to ask, okay, well, what, what can we learn about the higher level theory indirectly just by knowing that the lower level theory comes out of it? Um, and the answer tends to be that um, on the one hand, the very fact that we have a kind of self-consistent, autonomous, self-contained lower level theory tends to mean the lower level theory is a bit insensitive to what the higher level theory is doing. Um, but it can often be, and, and so it is in the Einstein example you give, and so it is here, I think, that certain features of the high level theory are heavily constrained by what the low level theory looks like. So in this case, it seems that the high level theory had better be such that the that it has the right numbers of um, degrees of freedom to give back the black hole entropy in order for the lower level description to be self-consistent. Um, and it's also worth saying, I mean, you talked about various different um, assumptions we make, giving us different routes to something. It's worth saying, at least for something like the Hawking radiation, some of the assumptions can be fairly minimal. I mean, my, 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 my derivation I just gave you of, um, where Hawking radiation came from in fairly physical terms from entanglement across the boundary. Um, the fact that um, really close bits of a quantum field are entangled is a prediction of quantum field theory on flat space-time. Um, while that specific prediction is not, as far as I'm aware, being very directly tested, um, the general framework of quantum field theory on flat space-time has been tested to a fantastic degree. It's a theory we have a tremendous amount of confidence in. Um, it's the underlying principle of the Higgs boson. It's the underlying principle of the calculations of the magnetic moment of the electron, which the theory gets right to about one part in a billion. It's a really, really thoroughly tested theory. <clears throat> um, and in order to get out the fact that radiation, the, the, the really close to the horizon, it looks like the horizon is hot, all you need to assume 
is that when you're really close to the horizon, where you can basically ignore the local curvature of space, you can pretend it's flat. And that's a foundational principle of general relativity. And general relativity is also an extremely well, vastly less well-tested than quantum field theory, but still very thoroughly well-tested theory. Um, uh, I, I could, the comments narcally that there are philosophers I know who are much more confident in general relativity than in quantum field theory, because they're more confident in mathematically beautiful things, but that's another matter. Um, so when you put together quantum field theory, the equivalence principle, um, that's sort of more or less already enough to give you the existence of Hawking radiation, or at least enough to tell you that something's going pathologically wrong in your story if you don't get Hawking radiation. There's a bunch of things of that kind. It's really hard to see how to fit together physics and not get something like that coming out. That's not a decisive argument at all. Um, it's a context of discovery argument. It's a context, it's an argument why this is probably the horse to bet on if you want to develop theories of this kind. But you know, you should definitely, you should keep an eye on other horses by all means. <laughs> yeah, so this is, I think, something that's quite powerful about some uh, physical theorizing, which is that you can go a long way just by examining how different theories might have to fit together. And most famously, Albert Einstein developed the general theory of relativity in a complete empirical vacuum in a way, right? I mean, it's not as if there were any data. Well, there might have been the the procession of the perihelion of Mercury, but you know about the procession of perihelion Mercury. It didn't shape the development of the theory. He has, he, he he really hoped it would get um it would get predicted, but um it's not like he put it in as a parameter in the theory. Yeah, so it's quite powerful way of uh, theorizing. Of course, it can go wrong, yeah. uh, but but I think as you point out in the context of discovery, and I think maybe this is a distinction that's quite useful, which is the distinction between the context of discovery and the context of uh, justification, I think supplied by Imre Lakatosh? Uh, it's, uh, Popper talks about it as well. And um, okay. the, I think some of the ideas you can see even earlier than that. But... Yeah, so the thought here is, so maybe, yeah, so maybe just because we have talked about that, can you simply just tell us what that is very quickly, what the yeah, distinction is? Sure, so, so here's, a, here's a caricature of the scientific method. You might think, well, a scientist goes around seeing uh, ooh, look, a round rock, ooh, look, a round rock, ooh, look, a round rock, hmm, don't see any square rocks, yeah, all rocks around, that's my theory. Um, uh, and one that, I mean, obviously any, any quick account that that's a caricature, but the particular way I might say that's a caricature is that the process of testing the theory and the process of coming up with the theory are one and the same. Um, by the time I had to come up with the theory, I had the evidence for it. Um, you know, what, what I was doing was collecting a bunch of instances and generalising over them. Science doesn't look anything like that. Um, uh, a much better model, still a caricature, but, but you know, getting at much more of what science is up to is it's like, here's an observation, here's an observation, here's an observation. How can I explain all these observations? Hmm, that's no good, it's too messy, that's no good, it doesn't, it, 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 it makes too many ad hoc assumptions. Hang on, this is a nice, simple, elegant, unified way of accounting for it. Now, is it right? Damn, this thing doesn't fit in. Now we've separated out the context of discovery, which is how you come up with a theory in the first place, and the context of justification, which is how you subsequently tested the theory's right. And Popper very famously argued that it was only, it was only the context of justification for which there could be a consistent scientific logic. So um, the process of coming up with a theory was something that wasn't really open to systematic principles of reasoning. It was an inherently creative activity. And I think scientists like this, to be honest, because partly it's kind of nice to think you know, it's not just the humanities people who get to be creative. Um, yeah, but it's not, um, 
you don't a scientist coming up with a theory is, is subject to stringent interdisciplinary standards as to how it's tested, but has a lot more leeway in coming up in the first place. They don't have to give an, an account in their paper of how they came up with the theory. Now that's actually glossing a lot of details. So if you're, these days, I think most people in philosophy of science would say that the distinction between discovery and justification is at most blurry. And I mean, for instance, the state, the clear statement I just made about, um, not having to justify how he came up with the theory stops being true if you could pl if, if plausibly you could have fiddled the theory to fit the data and you see this a lot in the replication process in psychology to talk about a completely different area of science um, but at least within physics where by and large um, the theories are extremely mathematically complex objects and they have relatively few moving parts um, it tends to make a relatively clean separation um, so we're trying to, we, we have a bunch of antecedently known stuff. We're trying to come up with a theory that fits that, that stuff. No, normally that stuff is summarized in the form of earlier theories in which we have confidence. So we're trying to come up with something that either reproduces those earlier theories in their entirety, or at least reproduces enough of those earlier theories to explain, to recover the explanations those earlier theories gave us. Once we've got that theory, uh, and that's usually really, really hard, then the challenge is to, to test the theory and see if the theory is correct. And I think most people agree that these days, the program of quantum gravity is very much in the context of discovery. There isn't some clear written down theories that you can sort of look at the evidence and see whether it's right or wrong. You're... Yes, that's absolutely right. Of course, what makes this tricky is that there's no, um, <clears throat> there's very little evidence currently available or plausibly available that goes beyond those various partial theories I described earlier. So if you think about, um, <clears throat> you know, the, the sort of heyday of particle physics in the sort of post-war generation, um, they were awash in data. Um, they had a huge amount of observational stuff about particle collisions that they would like to understand and unify. Now, they were still very much coming up with theories and then testing them. Their theorizing was nothing like, here's all the data, let's put into a unified story. Um, it was very much like, um let's see if we can find a way in which we can do stuff of this kind and then let's see if that will suffice to explain all of this manifold data um so then you can still absolutely distinguish these kind of two concepts there but but they at least it was, it was obvious what the just what form the justification was going to take um it's much harder to do that in quantum gravity i mean physics in some ways is a victim of its own success uh, it's hard to do a high energy physics experiment um for which our existing theories don't predict, predict the answer um, and when I say hard, I mean you need to build a device to size and server system. Or think okay. of something clever we haven't thought of yet. Exactly. Yeah. Some people still are trying to imagine possible tests that you could do using present-day equipment, but at least sort of crude arguments about the relevant energy scales and lens scales suggest that that's probably unlikely. Well, the trick is that the, the usual, um, the usual, the, the, the crude and obvious things you might think of doing don't work. Because rather require energies that are unmanageably large. I mean, solar system large or perhaps more. Um, you can get some stuff observationally from looking at the very early universe, but it was a long time ago and a lot, lot has happened since and it can be difficult to get fine-grained data that way. Now, does that mean our supposed quantum theory of gravity isn't going to make predictions for subtle reasons in, in more accessible regimes? No, it doesn't. Would I predict that it would make some predictions of that kind in more accessible regimes? Yes, actually, I think it's pretty likely that that theory, and we have it, will make subtle predictions in places that we can get at. Mm. But what are those places? 
without actually having the theory in hand, it's almost impossible to know. I mean, we, we, we have very good physical reasons to think that they will occur at these ridiculously unaccessibly high energies. Other than that, they kind of could be anywhere. Um, and that's the, that's the difficulty in the kind of idea that the subject should be phenomenology led. It's, it's well worth pursuing the phenomenology. So by phenomenology, I mean the like the low energy, just do direct low energy experiments and see what we learn from them. It's well worth doing that. Um, and, and this is a very difficult problem to make progress on. So it's worth trying lots and lots of different things. But it's also worth realizing that there's a little bit of a needle in the haystack about it. I mean, if you, at, at the limiting case, if you have no theory at all for what high energy quantum gravity looks like, then any experiment as good as any other. I mean, for all I know, there is a high energy quantum theory of gravity that says I clap my hands three times the world. Falsify. That's not very useful. <laughs> yeah, so that's really interesting. I think uh, the, the, the point that you made just now, I don't think is made often, which is that if we do have precise belt control, by belt control, I mean, we have the ability to do good calculations in them. If we have such theories of quantum gravity written down, then it's actually quite plausible that it would make predictions and regimes where we can actually test things. And this is something, if we were, we were talking about the history of statistical mechanics, one of the ways in which statistical mechanics really sort of earned its keep was by making predictions at a higher scale of observations about how things would behave, yeah. that you, if you were thinking about it naively, you might think that the only way such a theory could be uh, tested was if we had very powerful microscopes that could see these individual particles. Yeah. But actually it turned out that you could uh, make fairly fairly rigorous predictions at a higher level. Yeah, I mean, you couldn't plausibly say that we directly observed an atom until, well, I don't know, the electron microscope probably. Um, depends how you catch it out. Um, but of course, the empirical case was completely conclusive long before that. Yeah, and even before statistical mechanics, I think chemists had uh, fairly convincing evidence in terms of how chemical reactions behaved. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, 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 but, but we need, but but the, the, those only work because there was some theory in place. Mm. Now, that, again, that doesn't mean that we have the, that we have to wait till we have a complete quantum theory of gravity to do any useful experiments. But in any experiment we are doing tends to take a fragment of theory, a kind of educated guess as to what some bit of high energy quantum gravity might in fact look like at low energies, and then test the fragment of the theory. That's good science, it's well worth doing, um, but we shouldn't think it's like completely theory innocent. Yeah, so let's uh, go back to the black hole statistical mechanics. So say we accept uh, that there are these independent lines of evidence, these arguments from theories in development like the ADS-CFT correspondence and string theory uh, and semi-classical gravity that, that black holes really are statistical mechanical systems even though we are somewhat agnostic about the precise nature of those microscopic degrees of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, now earlier we had this question of information so maybe uh, connect what information has to do with any of this or what it means in this context, because I think this is something that people tend to get confused about okay. quite a lot. So there's a kind of relatively simple way of putting it. Um, we don't need to be worrying about something like a quantity of information or a measure of whether information's gone down or up. It comes down to this issue of reversibility that I mentioned in the beginning again. Um, remember remember the, the, the boxes thrown into the, into the supernova and the fact that the sufficiently careful observations could in principle tell us what came out. Because they could do that, information is not lost 
in the formation uh, in the formation of the star and, the, and it's collapsed into a supernova. Um, it's a confused thing. Supernova sometimes have black holes in the middle. Let's assume this one doesn't. Um, um, and you can just take that if you like as being the definition of information is not lost. Information is not lost means there's a one-to-one -one correspondence between what you put in and what you have to get out. And if that's the case, then for a black for, if that's the case for a black hole, then it means that the Hawking radiation has to carry information about what goes in. Um, in the, again, in that in that minimal sense that the, the exact state the Hawking radiation's in must vary according to what I put into the black hole in the first place. And the reason for that is because once the black hole is completely finished evaporating, it's not there anymore. Um, uh, all I've got now is, um, is space filled with Hawking radiation. There are some subtleties in place you can worry about that, and there are more careful ways of making that argument that push around it a little bit, but that'll, that'll perhaps do as a, as a first starting point for getting here. And even above that, and sort of more urgently, um, uh, it turns out that if, if the whole process of the black hole evaporating is going to be a process that's microscopically reversible in the same sense, then the Hawking radiation has got to start containing information about what went in relatively early on. Um, uh, by which I mean quite a long time before the black hole finishes evaporating, in it, which, mean, which means it's quite big, which means we think we understand the physics of it quite well. Um, and another way of seeing that is because remember that the, if there's a statistical mechanical account of the black hole, it's only got so many possible ways it could be. Uh, and as it gets smaller, there are fewer possible ways it could be. Um, and eventually that constraint starts to squeeze information out um, and it has to be squeezed out into the radiation in order for the whole process reversible. Why does all that matter and why in particular do I insist on saying this is a problem even when the black hole is pretty big? Well, because according to the original Hawking calculation that started this whole game off, there isn't any information in the radiation. The radiation is exactly the same, however the black hole formed. What physicists call perfect black body radiation. It depends on the mass and charge and spin of the black hole, but on nothing else. So we've got a, a sort of apparent, like, closed circle of paradox here, where a bunch of arguments in which Hawking's original calculation was central led us on an apparently irresistible theoretical path to, um, <clears throat> to the fact that um, uh, the black hole radiation must contain, um, must encode the information about how the black hole was formed. And then that seems, that's apparently in conflict with the very calculation that we started with. Yeah. So in some, you have basically described what gets called the black hole information loss paradox, right? In uh, which was first proposed by Hawking, but then there has been a, the version that you're describing right now is probably due to Don Page uh, or close to that of Don yeah. Page. So maybe just to sort of go through this a little bit more carefully. So yeah. if we um, consider an ordinary thermodynamic system that's not a black hole so we just have I don't know a bonfire or something like that yeah. so uh, so we suppose I write you know some message to you on a piece of paper but I immediately throw that piece of paper into the bonfire yeah. then what our ordinary physics tells us modulo some lots of subtleties that we can worry about is that if we are very careful about tracking what is coming out of the bonfire, all the light that's coming out of it, all the little fluctuations in the air around it, then in principle, we should be able to figure out what message I wrote. 
yeah. in that piece of paper. Well, if you want an analogy that's even close to the black hole, imagine you've got a metal sphere sitting in empty space, and you be and I and I heat it up with my laser, but I but I pulse my laser in Morse code um, to in, encode some message to you. Um, and then the black hole, the, 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 the metal sphere is sitting in empty space, but it's hot, so it's radiating. Eventually, it'll cool down right back to the completely cool state it started in. Um, so, according to the normal reversible microphysics, if you collect all the radiation that came off the iron sphere, you can work out what the Morse code message was. Yeah, and this is sort of, I mean, sort of just an analogy which might be helpful is that uh, spies have figured out ways of shining laser beams on window panes and figuring out what people are saying inside based on the vibrations mm. that the window pane is going through yeah. or someone can hook up to your electrical line and uh, figure out from the power fluctuations that your computer is consuming as to what is happening in your computer so th these are the kinds of extremely careful delicate sort of backing out of what is going on that we're thinking of and you're thinking of recovering the information that fell into the black hole, correct? Yeah. If you're plotting against the government, it's then you're winning. <laughs> Indeed. <laughs> um, now, what is, and the paradox really is that Hawking's calculation tells us that no, 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 there isn't any such subtle information that is encoded in the radiation that's coming out. That's of what the calculation needs to tell us, exactly. And no, I mean, a way of seeing that is that the, um, the way in which the um, information has to be encoded um, again uses this thing we call entanglement. Um, it can't be that the information is encoded in each of the individual photons that comes out separately, because otherwise they wouldn't, it wouldn't look, look even roughly like the black body radiation that hot systems ought to be emitting. So it has to be it's encoded really subtly in entanglement between the, um, uh, the various different photons. Um, but remember that in the Hawking emission process, the whole idea was that the emitted photon was maximally entangled, as entangled as much as you can be entangled, subject to the constraints of energy, with a photon on the inside of the event horizon. And you can't be maximally entangled with two things at once. There's this sort of beautifully, um, I know, uh, puritanical principle that gets called monogamy of entanglement, um, that basically says if you're, um, you know, if you if you're maximally committed to the photo on the interior of the event horizon, um, then you know you can't be messing around with a photo with another photon further out there, um, and the interior photon can't get out. It's only, um, I was about to say, it certainly isn't the outside one. That's a, people can see that, but it's not, it's not the peer to be the outside one. Um, so yes, yeah, so, the, so the, the Hawking calculation um, seems to be saying uh, all the entanglement must be to within the event horizon. The, re the outside radiation is this perfect black body radiation with no information in it at all. <clears throat> and um, that can't be if the, if the statistical decision, description is correct. Right. Yeah, so, so we have the paradox on the tables, this uh, contradiction between sort of an ordinary quantum mechanical way of thinking about how information should be evaporating out versus the actual detailed calculation telling us that, no, 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 it's not evaporating out in this way. Um, perhaps there's a more detailed calculation that tells us something different, but, yeah. but before we get to sort of possible resolutions of this, why does this paradox trouble physicists and philosophers so much? Because on the face of it, it seems like fairly abstruse stuff happening in a regime that we are not ever going to have empirical access to anytime soon. So why is it so 
troubling and interesting to physicists. Mm. I mean, I should say it mostly doesn't trouble philosophers, but I think it should trouble them. Mostly philosophers just think that, um, that this is just more evidence that the idea that you could think about black holes as thermodynamic was overblown anyway. Um, as I say, I think, I think that's wrong, I'm with a physicist. Why are physicists are troubled? Um, well, because the only route we've got to understanding, or understanding a quantum theory of gravity, as we were just discussing, is through this extrapolation of our existing theories and our understanding and our understand that, that we try, try to hold on to those theories even in places where they haven't been properly tested so this is an apparent contradiction internal to those theories but it's worth saying that when when physicists say they're troubled about this there's um uh there's a sort of um they're using it in a slightly different way than ordinary lay use of it i think if um if i say i'm uh, I'm troubled by the resurgence of the coronavirus in the southwest. I mean something like, um, I wish it wasn't there. I'm, I that I, that wasn't true. When physicists say we're troubled by the apparent inconsistency between these two descriptions, they mean something like, this is really cool. <laughs> now we can find something. Right. <laughs> because the, the, as a general rule, the pattern of resolving paradoxes in physics has led us to deeper understanding. Generally speaking, um, you yeah, know, there's a there's a sort of tendency where I, a, a paradox, or well, at least what the sort of paradox we're thinking about here, comes about because I've got one body of facts I feel really confident about that leads to one conclusion, and another body of facts I feel really confident about that leads to the opposite conclusion. And the obvious response you tend to make here is say, well, okay, so I have to get rid of one of these things. Um, and this tends to be how you know ordinary you know. Social, social life problems of this sort get resolved. And very often in philosophy, it's how people reason. If you, um, if you say, well, like, I, such and such set of principles look reasonable, such and such set of principles also look reasonable, but they conflict. Generally speaking, you debate which principles to give up on. You have to say, okay, um, I need to settle for getting rid of one of these principles. A kind of not totally inviolable, but pretty reliable result about physics is that nature doesn't like to settle. Um, so uh, I think the, the hunch people have in the information loss paradox is that the resolution is neither going to be let's give up on quantum field theory or let's give up on um, the quantum statistical mechanical account of black holes but let's suddenly realize there was a there was a tacit assumption we didn't notice we were making and then let's and, and, and from that let's get a deeper understanding <clears throat> right yeah so another way of asking my question might be and i get what you're saying but there are lots of places in physics where our pictures don't quite fit together very well so i'm you know i once attended a talk in which the physicist had spent his entire life working on the thermodynamics of water and he was pointing out that you know water has so many different phases under so many different thermodynamic conditions that in a way we still don't really have the full phase diagram of water properly mapped out and you know you might think that there are sort of inconsistencies with within that picture i don't know the details of that debate very well but you can imagine certain ways of describing water conflicting with sort of more microscopic ways of describing water and and I'm happy that there are people who think about it and I understand why they think about it. But the black hole information paradox, on the other hand, is something which really has captured the imagination of modern theoretical physics in a way that other inconsistencies or 
discrepancies really don't. So what exactly about this particular paradox is so exciting? Is it just that it has to do with quantum gravity and this is our one handle on that problem? Yeah, I mean, I think there's two, two things to say to that. And I mean, one is just, just in terms of your analogy of water. I mean, even in the context of that situation, so sure, I could have a certain, imagine I could, I could say, look, here's model type A for thinking about water. Uh, and here's model type B for thinking about water. Even so, in that situation, if I find that model A, in a situation where the assumptions underpinning model A are correct, suggests that water has such and such features, and model B, in an overlapping regime where the assumptions that govern model B seem to correct, says no, water doesn't have those, those features. The normal response to that is not just to sort of shrug and say, well, you know, it's a very variable, complicated system. You normally say, yes somewhere we're making an error here but some of the assumptions under which we thought a model was valid must have been wrong or else it's subtle than we thought and these are subtly compatible in ways we hadn't understood if you if you don't do that if you just shrug then you're saying okay i'm no longer bothered about the claim that my theory actually holds in this particular set of um set of domains of areas you know it's, it's not enough just to say in physics um well this theory works except when it doesn't. We want some way of parameterizing in a moderately principled way what the regime of areas in which it works are, because almost always, even outside the esoteric regimes of quantum gravity, we want to trust theories in places other than the ones where we've immediately verified that, that very specific application. You know, if you only trust theories in places where you've already tested them, then you didn't need the theory in the first place. But as far as, I mean, that's the general answer, but as far as the black hole case in particular is concerned, why is this particularly important? Um, well, my own, my own theory about this, um, and as with many theories in philosophy, I wouldn't exactly claim it was original, but maybe it succeeds in stating explicitly what's kind of tacit in a lot of these discussions, is black holes are kind of theoretical allowance for doing quantum gravity. Um, in a number of respects, but in particularly with respect to that issue we talked about earlier, how do you test the high energy theory at low energies? Um, so uh, the normal assumption in physics is general relativity is a low energy theory, it breaks down as high energies, what do we mean by high energies? We mean these things that get called the Planck scales, these ludicrously short distance distances, ludicrously high energies. Um, <clears throat> and of course black holes um, have that happening in the most direct and straightforward sense of the singularity, but that's not in itself super interesting because again that's just a regime we don't know what, what to predict from and the singularity doesn't really affect what happens outside the black hole in any obvious or direct way. But in important ways, the, um, the black hole does, um, uh, does also have a breakdown of the ordinary physics at the event horizon from certain perspectives. So if I try to Im imagine doing, doing physics for the person hanging on a string I was talking about earlier. So they've got an orbiting spaceship far above the black hole, they're letting themselves down on a rope and they're observing the, lo the local physics as they get closer and closer to the black hole. Well, the local gravity they experience is getting more and more intense as they go closer the time dilation compared to their colleague on the spaceship is getting more and more extreme. The wavelengths of radiation that was perfectly well behaved out of their spaceship is getting shorter and shorter. And as they get closer and closer to the event horizon, I mean, long, long after the point at which they died in reality, but um, science is not done without risks, um, there'll come a point where they simply can't describe what's going on um, at uh, using low energy physics. They have to use our full theory of quantum gravity. And this isn't a breakdown that's isolating itself from the high, from the lower energies going on. That, that's a breakdown that's happening below their feet. Um, and it's a breakdown that, in order to give self-consistency, is radiating energy up into 
the low energy regime and absorbing energy down from the high energy regime. Um, and furthermore, and perhaps even more deeply, um, uh, from the point of view of someone who accidentally fell out of that same spaceship and plummeted past me at, at extremely close, close to the local speed of light, um, they don't see the high energy physics at all. Their description of what's going on is entirely in terms of low energy physics. So in two different ways, we've got a situation where phenomena um, that are predicted by the unknown high energy physics can be re-predicted or constrained by the low energy physics. And so doing physics in the vicinity of the black hole event horizon is a strong and surprising consistency constraint uh, for what a quantum theory of gravity would have to look like. And so it matters a lot that we understand how physics works in that regime. Right. Yeah, that, that's, very, that's very interesting about this kind of, this idea that physics has usually the separation of scales in a way in which physics at one scale is relatively independent of physics at another scale. But there are certain regimes in which that sort of breaks down and there's a kind of a mixing of scales. And that's really where you might want to think about um, developing new theories. Um, yeah, to just sort of to start winding this up, one, uh, so A is that you think that the black hole horizon is one such place. I think that's what you were pointing at. Uh, but another question that I have is that, uh, how, how should we think about the connection of the issues here with something that happens let's say uh, the cosmological constant problem or what gets called is the cosmological constant problem. So maybe just to sort of very quickly, you can tell us what the cosmological problem is and how that also is this kind of problem of two different scales not sort of lining up in the right sort of way. Yeah, so, so normally in physics, as we've talked a few times, then we're doing, we're studying systems at low energies um, and what we're studying is supposed to be like the, the residue of an unknown physics at high energies. And you might naturally expect, you know, high, high energy means like fast and energetic and excited. And you normally think that that ought to have a big effect on low energy stuff. I mean, if, uh, um, if, I, if I'm low energy, if I jump into the sun, that's high energy. That doesn't mean I can jump into the sun with impunity. Um, but what, what you find in these physics examples is that normally speaking, the, um, the, low the, 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 the things you don't know about the high energy regime can be encoded in a small number of parameters that determine the low energy regime, things like masses and charges of particles. Um, and to some extent, that just makes it a purely empirical matter because we, we, we don't know those quantities except from experiment anyway. So all of that unknownness sort of drops away. The thing, the thing we measure, if you like, is the, when we measure the electric charge, we measure the sum of the unknown real charge plus the unknown high energy um, um, corrections to that real charge. And although we don't know what the division is into the two parts, all we have access to is, is the total, so it doesn't matter very much. But also in general, um, when we've got these situations, you can normally make, es make estimates on reasonable assumptions, um, roughly speaking assumptions that the constants in the high energy theory were not chosen with exquisitely delicate care, that tell you roughly how big the parameters in the low energy theory could be. And there's, these, there's plenty of examples, most of them in kind of solid state physics, but some important ones in particle physics, where reasoning on these lines um, gives you the correct value of the um, <coughs> uh, of the gives you the, the sort of correct scale of the low energy parameter, even though it doesn't tell you its exact value. Now, the cosmological constant from a particle physics point of view is just this particular number in the um, equations of 
any quantum field theory like. Um, absent gravity basically measures something like the energy density of empty space. Um, oh, and, and this, let me go back to what we were saying about empty space not being empty. It measures the energy density of a region with no particles in it. Um, it's a free parameter in these theories. Um, theoretically, you can take any value you like. It gets corrected by the phenomena of the high energy. Um, it doesn't matter except when gravity is involved, but gravity cares about the energy density of anything. And so um, it shows up, this, this energy density shows up in gravity examples as a, an extra term in Einstein's equations that Einstein called the cosmological constant. And it's roughly speaking, very roughly speaking, it's a kind of universal tendency for space to push itself apart or pull itself together over and above the particular details of the matter in space. Um, <clears throat> so it, the, you, um, you can ask yourself, what is the value of this number? And there's good news and bad news. The good news is that these qualitative measures, methods of field theory, let you estimate roughly how big this quantity should be. So even though we don't know those overall areas, we can predict on apparently reasonable assumptions about how large it is. The bad news is we get the answer wrong. Um, and when I say we get the answer wrong, we get the answer wrong by something like 120 orders of magnitude. Uh, so this has been called the least accurate prediction ever. <laughs> uh, I, I could try to give an an analogy for how large an error that is, but the truth is there isn't one. Um, <laughs> but make up whatever analogy you'd like for a really large thing is bigger than that. <laughs> right. Um, so that doesn't mean the theory is inconsistent, but it means that um, to make the theory work, we have to choose what the high level physics is doing to spectacularly high and slightly conspiratorial accuracy in order to get the low, low level physics out the way we want it to be. And it's slightly weirdly um, uh, got worse 20 years ago. So it used to be that we thought the theory predicted the cosmological constant in appropriate units should be 10 to the power of 120. Observation said it was zero. Um, well, obviously that's, that's a large difference. <laughs> you might think when something's zero, it often happens because there's some kind of symmetry that makes it cancel out. We just maybe just hadn't worked out what the symmetry was. There were theoretical reasons to be worried about that, but still the, the value might be telling. But then cosmology um, uh, in uh, around the last decade, last few years of the 20th century, um, the cosmological evidence solidified so that basically everyone everyone agreed that there was a cosmological constant. Um, sometimes it gets called dark energy, but from a particle physics point of view, you don't need to ask what is dark energy. It's just this expansion parameter in the equations. It, its origin is just quantum. It just shows up in quantum fields. Um, and by the way, you can you can debate whether that's true. But at least at the most minimal level, that's the way to think about it. Um, and although in in one sense, the fact that this quantity ends up being you know, order one rather than um, rather than zero um, in like made up units I just invented. It's probably more accurate to say that the cosmological constant is order one and the prediction is order one and the measurement is order 10 to the minus 120. Um, <clears throat> but in any case, being wrong, in one sense, being wrong by 120 orders of magnitude is, is, is better than being wrong by infinity. Um, in another sense, it's still pretty damn bad. And now that kind of hope that there was some kind of symmetry type argument that said it just disappeared entirely has gone away. <clears throat> Yeah, so that's really interesting is that it's, it's again this idea that earlier we thought that we could do physics at a certain scale sort of independently of the goings on at a much smaller scale, but now with the cosmological constant, that's not true. Well, maybe that's the lesson, maybe not. Um, it's, it's kind of up for grabs. Um, so this is a place where 
some very standard, apparently very innocuous arguments about, se about scale separation seem to break down. Um, and I don't think we can, um, we can simply shrug and go home having discovered that, um, because we're relying on this is the same point earlier that we want to trust our theories in place, not just in place where we've directly tested them. Um, uh, if those arguments break down now in this place, then it, seems, it becomes less clear why, we why we're justifying trust them in other places. Um, so there's an urgent need to understand why they break down in just this place. Um, what, uh, either is there something special about um, the cosmological constant arguments and actually some similar arguments that apply to the mass of the Higgs boson um, that just doesn't apply in other places? Or is there actually some subtlety um, about how these arguments are justified that works differently here? Or is there something else we're missing somewhere? Right. Yeah, so this is, this is the idea that often gets called naturalness, right? That the idea that in a way uh, we do physics fairly uh, by ignoring what happens on at smaller scales. Yes, although it's, it's a pretty re it's a pretty refined sort of naturalness. It's I mean, um, the, the the point is to make to, to make the um, the cosmological constant have the measured value it has. The parameters of the high level theory collectively need to be set to a very specific, precise set of values. What what those values are depends on the high level physics is, but more or less independent of what it is, there'll be some very very specific set of values they have to have. Um, they have to have that to one part in one hundred and twenty. Sorry, that would, that would be okay. One part in 10 to the power. Of 100. <laughs> um, and it, 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 if that were the case, it would basically be impossible to characterize those parameters of the high level theory, except by saying they're those values such that the low level theory has such and such form. Which we kind of like saying, imagine you have some theory about why, um, why, why, why chlorophyll was green or something that required you to, to, to make assumptions about the charge of the electron that was so precise that, that, that outstripped the ability to measure the charge of the electron. So the most precise thing you could ever say about the charge of the electron was it's that value such that chlorophyll is green. That, that does quite a lot of violence to our normal sense about how science is organised. Right. And yeah, that might be a cool discovery, but it's, let's not kid ourselves that it would be a localised discovery restricted to particle physics. And do you think we could think about the black hole information paradox in a similar way? That it's this thing that requires us to do a fairly careful fine tuning of uh, the quantum gravity theory? Uh, no, short answer. Okay. Um, the, 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 there are analogues between them, but not, not, not at quite that level of detail. There's no, um, the, the prediction that Hawking radiation is thermal and that um, it needs to be you know, informationless, let's say, and that it needs to carry lots of information to support the statistical mechanical story. That's categorical. It doesn't, it doesn't rely on natural assumptions of various kinds in the stories. It just comes straight out of the framework. The sense which they're analogous, I think, is just the sense that both of them are apparent paradoxes. Um, and um, uh, if we want to resolve those paradoxes, we either have to give up on some long-cherished presumptions or realise that we're not thinking clearly enough about things and there's a way of making things work that we haven't yet seen. So in that, in, in that sense, they're playing similar conceptual roles in their different, though not that far apart, fields. Um, but I don't think that you know, the specific forms of the paradox are pretty different, I think. Yeah, so I guess I was thinking about someone who might say that one way we could get the Hawking radiation to give us the information that we threw in is by adding very fine-grained corrections to the quantum field theory that lives on the horizon. and uh, make that provide corrections to the Hawking radiation that will 
you know, end that, up? That looks hard to do. I mean, um, so fine grain can mean different things. I mean, there's a there's a fine there's a fine grained entropy that that black holes should have. That's that, that's a different sense of entropy than the one we're using earlier. It's kind of a measure, if you like, of how many of of how of, of how if, if the black hole is an entangled system, how spread it is across the actual states it, it can have. Um, and it's certainly true that there's been a startling amount of progress in recent years in, in how we might find ways of calculating the, that fine-grained entropy. And those calculations seem to support the claim that black holes really are statistical mechanical systems. They sort of support this physical consensus. Um, what that what that in, what, what anything of that kind itself doesn't do is speak to what's going wrong in the Hawking calculation. Um, Hawking's calculation of black hole radiation, Hawking's mechanism for it, predicts um, no information in the, in the radiation. The, the, the correction you need to Hawking's calculation in order to get radiation out is not small. Um, it, it's been recognized record some while and not, not, not challenged by recent work that it's in physics parlance, it's leading order or order one. It's, it, it, it requires the quantum field theory to go completely wrong in the value, or at least that's how it seems to be. Probably that's not right. Probably there's something we're missing, but um, that's what seems to be going wrong. So it's not as if very fine tuning the parameter of, um, or, or subtly varying the quantum field theory, at least in the dimensions in which we normally subtly vary quantum field theory. Um, would solve the problem. I mean, this has been a general a, a general pattern in the recent literature on this. Um, again, this is a, this is a as, as you know yourself, this is a live and fast moving area of physics, um, and I wouldn't pretend to um, be speaking for every, everything to be done in it. But by and large, um, what the last twenty years' work have done is make the case that black holes are statistical systems stronger and stronger and stronger and stronger while being largely silent on what just what is going wrong in the Hawking calculation. Right. <clears throat> okay, so I think uh, this is probably a good place to start closing up. So final question or final two questions, and mm. you can answer them however you like. Um, so you, there's been a ton of work as, you, as we were discussing in this area in the past couple of decades. So what lines of research do you think is most promising? And relatedly, what do you wish that more people, both physicists and philosophers, would work on in this space? Okay, so I'm gonna, at the detailed level, I'm going to confess my ignorance as to just what the right uh, routes to work on in, um, uh, in, in the development of the information loss paradox are. A lot of this is specific questions in cutting-edge physics, and anything I said would be a little date. Um, at a slightly broader scale, um, I think there's, and this is perhaps you know, what should a philosopher be working on here, perhaps rather than a physicist. Um, there, there are kind of, um, there are sort of communication and gaps and kind of consilience gaps in, in, in the way the subject's developed. It, by, by its nature, um, it's been very driven by the most recent pieces of calculation and the most recent conversations. And, um, and that can make it difficult to, get a kind of slightly more zoomed out grasp of which are the things on which there really is solid evidence and which are the most recent speculations and fads. Um, you can get, if you want to get into this material and you're not already deeply engaged in it, then um, you can read review articles, but they tend to be written to get graduate students up to the most recent cutting edge. You can read historical reminiscences of how the field developed, but they tend to be aimed at a different audience. Um, there's a place for um 
really trying to, you know, critically, critically but sympathetically assess what's going on in the arguments and um, improve some 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 of the pedagogy and the and the, and the, the concepts that we that we have in play here. And there's there, there is work of this kind, but there's, there's, there's room to do more. And I think, I, I think philosophers' skills are in principle pretty well suited to a lot of this kind of thing. Um, but unfortunately, for various reasons, I think the, the normal philosophical principle that wants a principle of charity, and wants to look for the most sympathetic reading of the author reading, doesn't always get followed when we're dealing with some of these um, uh, mathematically somewhat messy cutting edge bits of physics. And so I think a lot of the, a lot of the philosophy discussion has had a bit more of the, well, look, this is why the physicists are confused and not perhaps enough of the, let's assume for the sake of argument that physicists aren't confused and try to make the max and, and try to get the maximally coherent reading of what they're doing and then assess that. So I think there's, I think, I think there's a, there, there are good communications we have there. I think, um, I think, I think it's a nice example of a problem, a conceptual problem physicists really care about. I think people in outside theoretical physics sometimes have the impression it's a purely calculational subject. Um, and that no one has time for conceptual problems. Um, this is a conceptual problem that the uh, quantum gravity community for, in one way or another for the last 50 years has been obsessed about, 40 years, I guess, even so. Um, and there's, 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 there's room to sort of engage and, and, and pull at the various pieces of that. Um, in addition to that, I think, um, you know, I, I've, I've been saying there's a kind of tacit presumption inside a lot of this of the, the, what I was calling sort of low energy quantum general relativity is the thing we have to reproduce um, and it would be nice to get clearer on just which of the various places where we have empirical or quasi-empirical evidence that bears on that theory what are the spaces in which make, which, which, which could be reached and could be explored but haven't been that theory is not subject to the uh, everything at high energies um, Everything must be at super high energies for it to work, prima facie. That theory makes a whole bunch of predictions that aren't confirmed at low energies, but probably a whole bunch that aren't as well. Some of them are probably still empirically inaccessible, but, but others might be. So it'd be nice to be <clears throat> more solid and clear as to just what's going on there. Um, and I think finally, it would, be, um, it would be helpful to separate out rather more in some of these aspects of quantum gravity, which bits of the jigsaw rely on other bits. So as a matter of the historical development of these ideas, most of the ideas we've been talking about, um, about uh, the firewall paradox, information paradox and so forth, have come out of the same community who basically birthed string theory. Um, and string theory is a highly controversial theory. Um, uh, lots of people and other bits of physics don't like it very much. Lots of philosophers don't like it very much. Um, I like it, but that's not the point. Um, <clears throat> The point is, a lot of these results actually don't really lean on very much string theory. They're inspired by string theory results. They're, they were motivated in the first place by things people learned in string theory. Um, but a lot of them stand before Moen Steen. Dreadful mixed mess for so. Um, and it would be nice to be a little clearer on just what you need to assume to pick up any given part of the story. Yeah, so if I may just ask one quick follow-up. I know we've been going on for almost two hours now, but um, so this is something you brought up this idea or this point that philosophers tend to be fairly skeptical of the kinds of arguments that a certain um, line of theoretical physics adopts, which does not pay much attention, though it pays some attention, to mathematical rigor and sort of very explicitly stating the assumptions and 
very explicitly stating sort of what are the premises and uh, argumentative steps that they take. And uh, I'm just sort of curious as to uh, why it is that that more messy way of thinking about the world is so powerful and is so powerful in a more, in a way that allows you to calculate fairly precisely, even if it's not sort of rigorous in the mathematical or philosophical sense. So one might imagine that messy reasoning will give you messy results in a way, right? Like messy reasoning will tell me that after this interview is done, you will walk out this room, but I might not be able to predict the precise momentum and positions of your hands and your legs when you do that. But somehow in physics, we are able to get fairly precise predictions out of fairly messy reasoning. So if you could just comment on that and then we'll close with that. Yeah, I mean, it, my comments are speculative. Um, I, th I think what's going on is often the following. Um, the way uh, the way a physics calculation might go is something like, you know, here's um, uh, here's the uh, here's the here's the, here's, here's the thing I want to calculate. Here are the basic main parameters here. Here are a whole bunch of mathematical manipulations I make that sometimes work and sometimes don't. Um, and are only really technically, strictly speaking, valid if you make an, if, if, if you make a, a lot of very subtle assumptions that I'm not going to bother checking, um, and I'll do them anyway and, and, and succeed. So I mean, to give br briefly, momentarily technical things like inverting the operation, the order of certain operations, and integrating mm -hmm. the, the differentiating on integral signs and summing integrals and, and so on, and, um, and all these kind of moves that physicists do all the time and mathematicians cry. You know, Big tears over. Um, and I think, I mean, it's not that you hear this um, state of image by physicists, but I, my, my, my sort of pet feeling as to what's going on is normally speaking, the way in which you get those, those details to fill in um, relies on you making kind of quite subtle, fine grained assumptions about, you know, how continuous functions are, what's the space of functions you're defining things on. Um, normally speaking, those things are not actually specified in the way the physics calculation is set up. And normally those features don't do representational work in, um, in the use of the physics. So, so for instance, um, in doing differential geometry, the theory, the mathematical theory used in general relativity, um, it really matters to formal um, theorems in this story uh, how, uh, how smooth the various functions are used. Are they, are they continuous in mathematician's sense? Are they differentiable, which means their slope is continuous? Is the slope of their slope continuous? Um, does the process of the slope of slope of slopes being continuous go on ad infinitum? Do they have the rather subtler property that mathematicians call being analytic? Uh, and, and so on. Uh, and physicists normally just say, well, whatever, whatever, whatever makes the theorems work, we'll use it. Um, and I think, again, the, the sort of reason for making that reasonable is that Nobody, I take it, seriously thinks that um, the, the whether a function is, 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 is 16 times differentiable or not, does or even continuous or not, does representational work um, in the physics. So these are not features of a, physical, of a mathematical model in physics that we should believe. Um, the, 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 nobody really thinks that general relativity applies on arbitrarily small scales. We think it breaks down. Uh, very short scales, but not the arbitrarily short scales that are relevant to making sense of these kind of presumptions in mathematics. Um, and um, insofar as that's the case, you've got a lot of room for manoeuvre to precisely define the mathematical space you're using 
without affecting the representation capacity of your theory in such a way that the mathematical eyes are indeed dotted and the T's are crossed. And I think if that's right, then the physicist strategy makes quite a lot of sense because you can be heuristically reasonably confident there's some way of filling it in. <coughs> and the actual ways of filling it in won't matter to the representational capacity of your theory. Um, and filling it in takes time that could be better used integrating things. Okay. Um, so that's a reconstruction and it doesn't cover all cases by any means, but I think that gets at least some of why physics gets away with the sloppiness it uses. Yeah, there's this uh, wonderful quote by the mathematician and engineer Richard Hamming, and I'll probably butcher it, but it goes something like, if whether or not a plane flies depends on whether it, the integration was done using Riemann integration or Lebesgue integration, then don't fly in that plane. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So we want a certain kind of robustness, and that robustness allows us to calculate things. Okay, so thank you, David, for all the wonderful discussion. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on.